morning, everyone. How's everybody doing this morning? For those of you who may not know me, my name is Jim. Normally, I'm the one who's muddling through chords up here and attempting to lead worship. This place right here, standing and talking to you all, much more my happy place than standing right there. So Nathan and team, thank you. This is a wonderful Sunday that I can just talk to you all about uh, the scriptures and about faith. And I don't have to make sure that my voice is on pitch. So I'm really excited to be up here. So kids, um, we're going to do a little bit of a, an activity to get us started. But I need my son Jack to come forward. We weren't sure if he was acolyting today. So now this um, demonstration will be done for you while he's in a robe, which I think really adds a poetry to what is about to happen here. So you may or may not know this about me. But I'm somewhat of a a Tolkien enthusiast. Um, I have recently written and successfully defended my master's thesis on Tolkien. So I now would like to call myself a Tolkien scholar. Uh, I think that that's pretty official now. Um, Who here, kids, has ever read, had it read to you, listened to, or even seen the movies, The Lord of the Rings? Raise your hand high. All right, parents. That percentage is not high enough for a solid Anglican church. That is not high enough. Um, so, so adults, I'll ask you to participate. Who's ever read the books or seen the movies? Okay, that's better. Okay. Whew, I was going to have to walk off. Um, So there's this great scene in the movie where Samwise, who's the best? Raise your hand if you think Samwise is the best. Of course he is. Um, There's this great scene. You may recall they're at the foot of Mount Doom and Frodo's exhausted by the weight of the ring. And Sam says, I may not be able to carry the ring, but I can carry you. Who remember who, who cries when that scene happens? I mean, it's so beautiful. So kids, let me ask you a question. Who here believes that I can pick my son up on my shoulder? Raise your hand if you believe that I have strength enough to pick my son up on my shoulder. All right. Who here thinks there's no way that I'm strong enough to pick my son up? All right. All right. To pick him up on my shoulder. So um, we're going to reenact the scene for you really quickly. So Jack will be playing the part of a really exhausted Frodo. Okay. And I, of course, the best character in the film, Sam Wise. Scene. I may not be able to carry the ring, but I can carry you. Thank you, Jack. Have a seat. Kids, let me ask you a question. Raise your hand if you did believe that I could pick him up on my shoulder and carry him. Okay. Now, who displayed faith in that exercise? Who thinks they know? Now, you may have believed it. You may have mentally ascended to this equation like, well, he's a big guy. It's his his son. He can probably put him on his shoulder and probably carry him. But in that carry him in that little display, who had faith that I could carry him? Jack had faith. Thank you. Because faith is more than simple ascending to a set of beliefs. So we're going to be talking a bit 
about that today. And I think that there are some pertinent questions about faith on your activity sheets. So you guys can work through that as you listen. For the next three weeks, we're going to be talking about the theological virtues. Uh, a, a quick aside, I um, started deadlifting again this week, and that actually hurt a little more than I thought. So if I like wince, it's because of that. So I apologize. Um, so we're going to be talking about the theological virtues. And so the Christian virtues, classically, there are actually seven of them. Three are theological, and four are referred to as the cardinal virtues. And so the next three weeks, today included, we'll be talking about the theological virtues, which you've probably heard most famously St. Paul articulate in chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. The theological virtues are faith, hope, and love. And so we'll begin this week with faith, then we'll do hope next week, and we'll finish with what Paul calls the greatest of these, which is love. So... Why are the theological virtues important? Well, the cardinal virtues are what are known as ascending virtues, which means you can ascend to them. You can practice at those things. You can uh, put habits into your life to get better at those four virtues. So justice, temperance, wisdom, and courage. So those virtues you can actually get better at. And you may say, well, how do I get better at wisdom? You probably have the answer in your head, right? You, I would, the older I get, I would say simply by living, if you're paying attention, hopefully you will grow more wise because experience is a great teacher. But you can study, you can read, you can learn, you can ascend to a higher level of wisdom. The same for courage, right? So courage is this virtue of being afraid and doing something anyway. Right, you can get better at that. I am uh, terrified of flying. Well, the only way that I can become courageous in flying is by doing what? Flying. And I can go do that, right? I don't want to, but I can, in fact, go do that. Now, the theological virtues are different. So those are what is, are known as infused virtues. So those virtues are not things that you, on your own merit, through your own act of the will can attain or get better at all by yourself. You cannot grow a a deeper agape love on your own. You cannot by yourself uh, ascend to and attain perfect hope or faith. These things are infused. They're given to you as gifts. And so the theological virtues are called theological because they have God as their object. So who is the author and finisher of our faith? It's, it's God, right? Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. So the theological virtues, God as their object, and these things are gifts that are infused. They're given to us by God to allow us to live more perfect and holy lives as he has designed us for. So as we go through those theological virtues, keep in mind that they are infused gifts, and these are not things that you can get better at. But today... As we talk about faith, I do want us to understand uh, that I think that there are some common misunderstandings about faith that need to broadly be corrected. So I'm going to pit two things together. And you might have noticed uh, in the readings, two of the readings that we had, that um, maybe if you're not careful, the faith being described in the passage in Mark can sound wholly different than the faith being described in James, right? James says uh, a faith apart from works is dead, that you show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith with my works. 
And then meanwhile, Christ in Mark is saying, if you believe, like mountains will move. And I think the way that we come to see those things are not contradictory or at odds with one another is by a proper understanding of what faith is. So um, as any good philosopher ought to do, the easiest way to get to the idea of what something is is by finding out what it is not. And so we're going to do that this morning with faith. So to begin with, faith is not mere belief. So um, there is, I think, unfortunately, a common understanding of faith in our modern world that it is um, willfully disregarding any amount of reason and just believing the unbelievable, right? Now, that is uh, actually known as fideism, where you would simply just have blind faith believing in a thing that probably by reason is wholly untrue. And I don't think the scriptures in any way describe that as the faith we're supposed to have, this thing that's given to us by God. On the other side, I don't, and the church has for uh, 1,600 years, condemned this as heresy. The counter to fideism, the opposite, would be uh, Pelagianism. So Pelagius was a British monk, and he said, um, you can actually attain God on your own. You can, you, you can work hard enough and do well enough in life that you can ascend to God and satisfy God with the ability that you have within you, right? So that was condemned 1,600 years ago as heresy. So faith isn't simply just ascending to a set of beliefs in your mind, and it's not uh, all these works that will save you, okay? So we know what it's not, and unfortunately, in the modern world, we have a tendency to fall into one of those two camps. In fact, if you were to, and I don't recommend doing this because it's terrible, But if you were to go to YouTube and um, explore Atheist YouTube, which is a real cesspool of a a place, but if you were to go explore the cool Atheist YouTube where they just disprove God over and over again, of course they don't, none of it's true. Their understanding of faith that we have as Christians is fideism, that we simply believe the unbelievable, we ascend to a set of beliefs that probably deep down we know are wholly irrational, pointless, and ridiculous, right? So what is proper faith? Why is fideism wrong? Well, proper faith is not simply ascending to a set of beliefs, but proper faith is belief and trust. Those two things have to work in concert for there to be an authentic biblical faith. That gift is that I am not only believing the things that God has told me, but I'm going to put my entire trust into the things that God has told me. Now let's take a second and see that God has created us as rational beings. We have the ability to reason and that ability to reason is actually a gift from God. God has given us as human beings the ability to reason and to understand the world around us and to even begin to grasp really difficult metaphysical questions. In fact, much of the Christian faith can... Uh, can prove out through reason aspects of the faith, right? So Thomas Aquinas would say that reason cannot disprove anything in the Christian faith. Because if you were to analyze things about the Christian faith, 
with proper reason, you would see that no, no amount of human reason could disprove the Christian faith. But he says not all things in the Christian faith can be proven by reason. But reason is a good gift given to us by God. Medieval scholars used to say that philosophy, or you could say just human reasoning, our ability to contemplate and to, to go through those acts of the mind in reasoning, the, that is a handmaiden of theology, right? It is a benefit to us as Christians to understand that the reasoning that we've been given is a gift from God, that part of our human intellect, right? And so reason and faith are never at odds, but there are things in our faith that can't be proven by mere reason. And those are the things that are given to us in special revelation by God, right? So it it is important to see that faith isn't a mere assent to beliefs that are wholly irrational and we know aren't true. So who here has ever heard that articulation of what it means to be a person of faith? You just believe irrational things because you want them to be true, that kind of thing, right? That, that is a pretty common tactic. And I would agree with them that that is rather ridiculous if that were in fact the thing that true Christian faith was. But it's not in any way, right? In fact, we know it's not because uh, the writer of the Gospel of John, John begins his very gospel by saying... That Christ, this incarnate second person of the Trinity, is the Lagos. So he is ultimate truth. He is that which is, right? And, and that Lagos term is actually a philosophical term that John uses to say, look, look at what has come to us. It is reason itself. It's truth himself has come to be with us. Paul does this in Acts 17 when he goes to the Areopagus. Paul says, you, you see that statue you have over there to the unknown God? Well, I'll tell you who that unknown God is. That is Christ. But that unknown God, that statue was human reason, was logic, was intellect. They just knew it, it had to be something supernatural. And Paul says, well, it is. It is something supernatural. It's the second person of the Trinity. It's Christ. So faith is not divorced wholly from reason. And it is not an ascent to a set of beliefs that are wholly irrational. There is great reasoning for many of the tenets of our our Christian faith, right? There are really sound reasons to believe in the most pivotal aspect of our faith, the resurrection. Really sound reasons why it is probably better for us to believe in the resurrection than not just by logic and reason, right? But there are things about our faith that cannot be proven by reason. And we, as uh, Anglicans, would call those things the holy mysteries. Uh, every week, we participate in one of those holy mysteries. And those, that holy mystery is when we come forth for the Lord's Supper. We believe that when Ford consecrates the bread and the wine, something happens. That that bread and wine um, remains bread and wine, but Christ is really present in the bread and the wine. That as a spiritual gift to us, God has said, come in faith to this, to this table and you will receive bread and wine. But this bread and wine is, is Christ's body and his blood given for you. That's why when we come up here, we'll hear uh, Ford or Eric say, this is Christ's body broken for you. Or this is Christ's blood shed for you. And that's a mystery that can't be proven by mere reason. And so that is this act of faith. And it's faith because we come forward, right? And it's a thing that may not be easily proven out with a logical syllogism, but it can't be disproven by a logical syllogism. 
That's Aquinas' point. So we know that faith is not just a mere assent to beliefs that are wholly irrational. But faith is not doing good things and trusting in yourself, earning your way to heaven. We know that faith is necessarily a gift. It's an infused virtue. So God gives us this gift of faith, and God is the one who fosters that gift of faith within us. Uh, St. Augustine puts it this way. Faith is believing what you do not see and being given eyes to see what it is you have believed. And I'll say that again because I think it's a really profound way to understand faith. Faith is believing what you do not see and then being given eyes to see what it is you have believed. And what Augustine is recognizing is both aspects of that are centered on God. God is the object of that faith. So when I am given the initial gift of faith to believe the thing that I cannot see, that's a gift from God. Then when I'm given eyes to see the things that I have believed, that too is a gift from God that God is fostering and growing in me. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says that Christ is the author, so that beginning point, and the finisher of our faith. And there's nothing I can do to attain and ascend to a deeper level of, of faith. That is, that is God acting in me. All I need to do is simply trust, right? So that beginning... Uh, display up here with Jack. Jack just needed to trust to get on my shoulder and then I walked, right? He had faith. He had that mental understanding that, you know, I've known my dad long enough to know my father can lift me. So I'm just going to flop sort of lifelessly and then he will lift me and walk with me. So that all we need to do is, is participate in the gifts that we've been given. And so we are given that gift And we are simply asked to just participate and put our trust in it. And so faith isn't mindless. It's not unreasonable. Faith isn't just an assent to beliefs. It's also not just action. It is all it is both the assent to belief and the action. It is trust and belief. That is the proper understanding of faith, knowing that it's a gift from God. So the best analogy that I've heard that's a simple one is simply the idea of a chair, which actually resonates quite a lot with me as a big guy. It's a little hard to trust a chair, right? And so when you come to a chair, you have the ability to mentally ascend to the idea that that is a chair. I can identify in the front row that thing right there is a chair. I don't have faith in the chair when I'm standing over here and I acknowledge it's a chair. I have faith in the chair when I not only take that mental ascent to a belief, but put my weight into the chair. Then I have had faith in the chair. Okay, and that is exactly what James talks about in the epistle, that simply standing back and saying, I believe that God is one. He says, oh, okay, but demons believe that. Satan's pretty understanding of that idea that there is but one God in three persons. He knows that. But what he didn't do was place the entirety of his being in that seat of faith. And so it is not just mentally acknowledging that God is God. There is some action we're called to. And it's because faith is belief and trust in concert. 
So when we think of this idea in Mark 11, when Jesus says, if you have faith, mountains could move. um, I think he's calling us to a participatory and active and living faith. And the reason I think you could you interpret Mark 11 that way is because you look at the entire opus of Christ in the Gospels. He is constantly calling us to something. And in fact, how he finishes this passage is he says, if you have faith, you can move mountains. And then he says, you should forgive people. So if it is simply a mental ascent. You could have faith and you could like with your mind move mountains with magic. Why add in the... Go and forgive people and they'll be forgiven. Right. Well, because it's not just that mental ascent of I'm going to step back and I believe that mountain will move. If you have faith, you'll put your entire trust in him and you could move mountains and nothing is uh, more powerful, not even moving mountains than the act of forgiveness. Nothing is more beautiful than that. But forgiveness is an act of faith. Right? It is saying, I, I not only believe that God is who he says he is, that I am who I say I am, and the person who has wronged me is who I know God has said he is. So I will forgive him because of that cycle of belief and then trust. Right? So faith is not mindless. Faith isn't just us working to attain some relationship with God. It's an infused gift, but it is an active gift. It is something we're called to do, which is why James says, if you simply have faith apart from works, if you acknowledge in your mind mentally that God is God and yet do nothing, you don't actually have faith. You have ascended to a set of beliefs in your mind, but you've not sat down in the chair. And what we're called to in this initial gift that God gives us in beginning our faith, the gifts he gives us to grow and deepen our faith is to continually put more and more of our trust in him more and more of the weight of ourselves, the entirety of our being into the things that he has said, that he has promised. And so that is a brief introduction of the theological virtues and a deepening of the faith. And and my prayer is over the course of these three weeks that to better understand what faith is, what hope is, what love is, will deepen the active life of our faith that we experience here Every Sunday. So when we come to the table, when we confess and we expect forgiveness, when we pass peace to one another, when we are forgiven, when we forgive other people, when we love the destitute and the broken, when we feed the hungry, we, that is the act of faith in life that is actively happening. And those things are the outflow of properly putting our weight, the weight of our being into the chair that is faith of who God is, who we are and what he has promised to us. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this morning. Father, I pray even now that your Holy Spirit would be working in each of our hearts, that you would be drawing us closer to you, that you would free us from any fear of putting more and more of the weight of our being into your hands, that we would have that trust and that belief deepened, that our faith would be grown in uh, the service, in the sacraments, uh, in the reading of the scriptures, in our daily active lives, that we would uh, come to trust and believe in you more fully, to put the entirety of ourselves into your hands and lean not on our own understandings. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.